the Open Paddock Rallycast. This is episode 69 for Tuesday, November 27th, 2019, Thanksgiving Eve. In this show, we chatted with co-driver Martin Brady about one of the most epic historic rallies in the world, the Roger, Roger Albert Clark Rally. It's five days, 1,200 total miles, 300 of those competitive, covers the entire length of England and into Scotland in some of those storied forests of rallying's history. This is Open Paddock, the Rallycast. Well, I'm your host, Mike Shaw, and for this podcast, I have to fly solo as it were for because of, boy, as it were for because, Ian did write that. Uh, because of the vagaries of time zones and work and Minnesota snowstorms, our own Mr. Historic, Ian Holmes, can't be with us. But he has supplied nearly all the questions for our special guests this evening, Martin Brady, and it is Britain's premier historic rally, the Roger Albert, Albert Clark. And so with us, as I said, is Martin Brady. Martin, how are you doing this evening, man? I'm good, thank you. I've sort of got over the huge amount of jet lag from the four or five hour boat journey back from the rally back to Ireland. Uh, it was more rally lagged than jet lagged, but I felt certainly very jet lagged. Uh, a lot more tired than I ever have been coming home from any US rally, that's for sure. But glad to be finished. Um, feel a sense of achievement that we did that. And definitely in retrospect, looking back on it, I enjoyed it. And I think I would do it again. <laughs> I'm not sure, but <laughs> at the moment I'm saying I would do it again. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear because this is an epic historic rally. This is something that harkens back to the days of yore and rallying. Um, it is called the Roger Albert Clark Rally. And I guess for those who don't know, do you have a little bit of history? I know Ian wrote me a little something about who Roger Albert Clark was, but if, I'm sure you've got something much more uh, uh, detailed on uh, what his history was and why it's named after him. Well, Roger Clark was a name that was eponymous, particularly for British fans and um, very much linked with success in the 1970s. He was a household name at the time. I, I believe it's slightly before my time. I'm just a child of, the, the, you know, 79 I was born, so it was before my time. But um, I believe through things like the fact that there was TV adverts, which he featured in for some sort of hair care products or something like that. He became a bit of a, a household name, as I understand. But he was famous for winning the... British round of the World Championship, which was called the RAC Rally, in deference to the fact that it was ran by the Royal Automobile Club. And I think that in itself also turned him into a household name. And he was just, when you think of Ford Escort Mark 1s, Ford Escort Mark 2s and success, and you look back on old footage of those those rallies and those sort of things, Roger Clark always features there. You know, he's every bit as famous as the other people you would associate with Mark 2 Escorts, like Ari Vatten and, and guys like that. But, you know, he, he rallied then... Uh, what I do know is that his last rally was the 1995 Network Q rally. I can't remember what he did it in, but I do remember, I can remember the, the, the fanfare about that at the time, the fact that, you know, this was his last his last go at the event and he passed away a short number of years after that. But he's still very much remembered and revered. And because of that, uh, a motor club called the DeLacy Motor Club, which themselves have been in existence for quite a number of years, I think, I, I, I stand to be corrected, but my understanding is that they are the oldest founded club in the UK. I know, I think, or something like that, or certainly the oldest founding running rallies or something. They're, they're, they're stalwarts of the sport over there, and um, they've been active, I think, since 1911, I think. is That's what gives them the status as they were, as they were that old. 
And they've been organizing events all up through those many years. And I see from their history that they actually organized something which I have to admit I thought was something of the modern era and was something that Ken Block invented. They invented they did ran events called Jim Canas in the 1950s. Somehow I don't think they were like exactly what <laughs> Mr. Not Block quite, does, yeah. going around in circles while uh yeah, creating great content for YouTube. I, I don't really think the 1953 DeLacy Motor Club Jumkana ended up on YouTube. But um, that club went on then, as I understand it, and again, I stand to be corrected by people more knowledgeable than I, they went on then to create an offshoot called the Roger Albert Clark Motor Club to run this rally and call it the Roger Albert Clark Rally so that it could have the shorthand name of the RAC which links it back to the glory days of the RAC rally, which ran for five days and ran the length and breadth of the UK, as this one did, because this rally started in Wales, but was, well, sorry, started in England because and then was headquartered in a town called, if I'm pronouncing it right, to me, it looks like Leominster, that's the way it's written, but I believe the locals call, pronounce it Lemster, and that's just over the border into, into England from Wales. So we traveled, I suppose, I guess for you guys, it will be like from traveling, you know, when we go to do New England, we travel between Maine and New Hampshire, you know, you're crossing state lines. So it was a little bit like that. We crossed into Wales, uh, you know, we did Radnor on the first day and then we came back into the, into England to be overnighted there and so on. Did the first two days based in that area and then we drove, uh, not in the rally cars, but we drove 250 miles up right through the middle of England up to Carlisle, which is again England but right on the borders with Scotland so we spent the next two three days then border hopping for stages between England and Scotland and that's how we finished the rally so it it took in some part of all of the UK and um, that was the that's the premise of it really that it harks back to the good old days and it's for historic cars for that reason so that it can be you know a days of your kind of thing and they split the classes up um, based on years. So to talk about ourselves, where, where we fitted in, we were in the FIA class, which means that our car was built to FIA regs, which is quite similar, as I understand, to the British historic regs. There's very little differences, but there are some differences. But for us, our car, when it was built and when it was completed, it had to be examined and photographed by an accredited scrutineer. So, you know, like the tech process in the U in the USA. But for this, it's a little bit more. Uh, it's a little bit more involved in that every component or every major component of the car is photographed and you get almost it is a passport. It's um, it's called the historic technical passport, I believe. So every it's that and it is the passport of that car. And it's that that car must comply to the build process and the homologation of that car in its period time. So just to clarify, that's a period time FIA. Yes, exactly. So so this car had to be the exact same car as, say, Roger Albert Clark himself would have used in World Championship rallies in the 1970s, or Ari Vatnin would have won the World Championship with in, I think it was 81 when he won the World Championship. So it had to have that exact spec and... Um, Obviously, it's it's a more modern built gearbox. It's modern remachined components. You know, a lot of these things are, are remanufactured, but they must be remanufactured to the exact same specification as was used at the time. And you're eligible at scrutineering that 
any of these things can be opened and checked. And if you're not, you know, if your engine isn't of the same displacement or the same components, or the same block head, whatever these things are, exactly the same as what those cars were in their day, then you don't comply to the class. And that's why it's so important that your car has the passport that's inspected as it's been built initially to see that it does comply with all these things and all your parts are the same and so on. And, you know, that your your body panels are of the same composition and thickness and so on as the road cars were in those days. And it's it's a document that runs for our cars, ran to over 50 pages and quite a lot of photographs. And there's there's a, a reasonable amount of expense in the application process for that and actually having somebody you know, an accredited scrutineer come and take the photographs and then it must be go through them to some office in Paris or somewhere. And eventually it comes back as this thick document that you have colour printed with a reference number and a sealed stamp on the cover page. Okay, this is the same. And he includes old photocopies of original four documents for things like updates that were made to the car as it went on in its competition career back then. You know, there were some things that were approved upon. So the the car that Seamus and I were competing in, the Mark II Escort, surprisingly enough, has a strong US connection, other than the fact that Seamus being the driver and an Atlanta-based man, this car competed in the USA in the hands of Frank Cunningham back, uh, not this season, but last season. He took the car to use in... I believe he used it in STPR and then Maine, and then also he did ESPR in that car. And Seamus and Frank are quite connected, first and foremost, through friendship, but also a number of years ago when Seamus was competing in Mitsubishi Evos in the, what was the SCCA Championship, I believe. Frank was co-driver for him. So the two guys got talking, and the next thing, Seamus had bought this Escort to use as an Escort in Ireland or the UK or wherever he was going to use it in Europe. It was shipped back at the end of last season and came back here to Ireland to the Seasport team in Galway and they set about giving the car a bare reshell, complete and utter rebuild. Um, you know, everything was stripped right back. We even painted the inside of it the same colour as the Escort in the US just for, I don't know, we like the shade of the colour or for familiarity or whatever. But um, everything was new on the car and it was put to as it should be for the, you know, the, the FIA historic spec over here. And that was the car that we we, we took to the event. Um, unfortunately, with time pressures and different bits and pieces, we didn't actually get to test it. We'd spoken about maybe doing a rally over here to get just into the car because it's as different as you can imagine from the US car. So that didn't really happen. Um, just didn't didn't work out for us. So we went to Sweet Lamb in Wales which is uh, first and foremost a, a private farm, uh, a sheep farm, as the name might suggest. Uh, I haven't, I can't say I've tasted any of the lambs to say how sweet they are, but I'm sure they are sweet. <laughs> but there's a number of, um, you know, there's, there's, I think, in excess of 5,000 acres on that farm. So with 5,000 acres comes a lot of gravel roads and they're of a fantastic pedigree because they're of such a pedigree that they form part of a world championship stage um, on the Wales Rally GB. And you can come and privately hire out sections of that road or sections of that farm to come and test. And there's, we spent a day and a half there testing. Aren't that simple, yet somewhat significant bugs like, you know, get just where Seamus liked it, fixing out a few problems with, um, you know, the pedals and it just been set to his liking and different things. And in fact, we ran so late on day one and thanks to the 
the kind assistance of the owner of the facility, we actually stayed there until a little bit beyond dark. So when we were there, we decided, well, we'd use the opportunity to set up our lights and test our lights because so much of the event we were facing into was going to be based at night. And that was a, you know, that was a handy advantage that we, we, we managed to eke out there. And then we came back uh, the next morning, just to do a little bit more running to check some stuff that we had changed. So we were lucky to have that because quite a rally to settle into not being familiar with the car. And as I say, it's, you know, so different. You know, Seamus would have driven those cars in their day and in the mid 80s when he was last competing in Ireland. Um, he would have won rallies in those spec of cars. But it's just little things to get back into the difference of no power steering on this car, which, you know, you used to in the US and either the Escort we have or the Evo. Now you're back to a five-speed normal H-pattern box. Right, yeah. Quite a, quite a bit of difference there. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a, it's got a thing called a dog leg first, which means first is actually... So your first gear, where you would imagine first to be, is reverse, and then first is down behind that. So you know, your first, you then you push up for a second. Just little things like that, that, you know, Seamus had to get the muscle memory back into how it used to be years ago. Um, but it was fine, you know. We, after a while, we, we got into the into the swing of it and it was good. And another thing you've got to adapt to, the, the brakes on those cars, because you're running, you know, period spec uh, setup. Oh, right. They're just, yeah, they're, they're, they're nowhere near as good as modern. And I'm sure with the advances in brake pad technology, they're much better than those cars were in late 70s, early 80s. But they're still quite a bit different to what you're used to. And, you know, the cars, they they heat up a little bit quicker. So you've got to be watching to make sure that the fans are on them and things like that. So there's just there's those few little differences to get used to. So there's obviously you, that car that you guys are in, that's the FIA spec. And, and there's I'm, I'm, several other others, I'm sure, that were also of that spec. But there were a total yes. of 145 entries, and there was, uh, it was split into a couple of groups, I believe, as well. And we had historics going back yeah. to some old sobs to all kinds of historics out there, didn't we? Yeah, what you had there really was that the first batch of cars on the road were, for seating purposes, um, and just to be kinder to those guys that were in perhaps the, I don't to call them less capable, but not less capable, but perhaps, you know, more fragile let's say the pre-1968 cars were running first on the road and then a car under 1600 cc which is a little bit fair on them because the road conditions are a little bit more favorable for them to go into the stages then before the two liter cars and the beer cars you know have mm-hmm. cut the roads up a little bit and formed some roads those guys always ran first every day um when the reseed happened those guys were first on the road so you had a group of somewhere between 30 and 40 of those cars and then everyone behind so we were broken up into categories. So category B was anything before 1967. Um, and that was broken down into subcategories then based on your CC. You know, there was actually a thousand CC class, which I think some of those salves that you refer to would have fitted into. You've got a separate class, Porsche 911s, of which there were a few, that sort of thing. And then they're broken into either single cam or twin cam engines, all those subdivisions. Then you come up to the next class, which was 68 to 74, again, broken down into CC and camshaft classes and so on. Category three, which is 75 to 81. And that's where the bulk of the Mark II escorts in the rally, uh, that's where they fitted in. Like, for example, a name that would be familiar to your US listeners, Barry McKenna. Barry's car was built to the UK historic regs, which, as I say, was as similar to ours as doesn't make a difference. It's, it's still 
back into that it must be of of period. So they were they were in that class. Then you come up that's uh, between eighty two and eighty five. Then there was a class between eighty six and ninety. And then there was the FA class, which we were in, and that was into two groups, the under-1600 and over-1600. And then you had a class which I, I didn't even understand it myself, but it was called the Safari Spec class. Oh, yeah. And I think that was a little bit of a catch-all for anybody that didn't exactly fit into the other ones. And then there was the open class rally. So, for example, the guy that was running behind us uh, was in a thing called the Hillman Avenger. Uh, yet he had a Vauxhall engine, which is of an, an Opel derivative, in the car, and he had a sequential gearbox and paddle shift. So he was a historic vehicle with a very modern twist, and those guys fitted into the open rally. And there was also one thing that was unusual. I can't say what class he fitted into, I'm not sure, but there's a guy there competing in a GT86, a Toyota, which oh, you yeah. guys would know, I think, more common as a BRZ like, say, Eric Potts competes in. And I'm told that because that car in its standard guise is under 1600, there was a class somewhere that that fitted into. I'm, I'm not sure which one. So he was there competing. That's not yeah, very and, historic. Uh, started in front of us <laughs> in the morning. No, it was... It, I, I'm, I, I can't speak as to why he was there. I'm not exactly sure what class he fitted into. There were so many classes and they catered for so many people that I just sort of concentrated on ours and that was it and made sure that... Uh, we were all legit for what, what we were in, and uh, that was all I really focused on, you know. So, But for the most part, of those 145 entries, I mean, we think about here in the U.S., we see a few historics. It seems like actually a few more each year, which is great. Uh, I think we see more and more people obtaining mm-hmm. them, bringing them over, whatever, which is fun to see. But, you know, again, we see maybe three at a rally if we're lucky. Here you have yes. majority of the field are true historic rally cars. For us, the journey to this rally started, um, I believe it was last October. And I do some stuff um, with with helping out in the background with Barry McKenna's team. So I was putting in an entry for Barry's car and for our car. And it was one of those things that, you know, the entries open on a particular date and it fills up on that date because there are so many people that build their rally year around this. And this is the one rally they want to do and the one rally they're determined to do and they put all their effort into it. So you have more demand than there is availability. So they do hold um, 15 entries, I think, for overseas crews. So I certainly put my hand up to say that, you know, both these guys are coming from the US. Whether that played into the hands of getting us an entry or not, we were lucky enough to get both cars in on the entry list. But there was quite the reserve list at that time. And um, again, finding accommodation, we had it booked over 12 months in advance. You know, all these things were, were were being planned because it is the rally only runs every second year. So you can imagine already the anticipation and people are talking about the next one. And yet it's two years away. So every year it gets a little bit more popular. Um, it's, this was the 13th edition of the rally and it's getting more and more press I think there was a you know when we signed on there was quite a lot of um, foreign journalists I think just by coincidence having happening to sign on when we were there and you can see that it is because it's it's a unique rally it's not something you're going to get um, in too many other places for different reasons and I think that's why it, it attracts the attention 
So the first hurdle for us was was getting an entry, and then you you know you take it from there because interestingly, this rally in previous years did not run on pace notes. And even this year, it's probably an overstatement to say that it ran on pace notes as such. And to let me explain that, initially this rally ran on maps, as rallies would have done in the 70s and 80s. So you got a map book, uh, an ordnance survey map, marked your stage out in it yourself, and away you went into the woods and you called the notes, you know, through a magnifying glass called a potty. And you called your driver, you know, whatever it was, be it you gave a, a, a word description like medium right, fast right, slow right, K right, square right, hairpin right, something like that. Or some guys called them in degrees. So that's where this, this rally started out. And then two years ago, it moved to a system of provided safety notes, as they call them. So not quite as you wouldn't call them full pace notes. They're designed, as the name suggests, this side of the line of safety. Right. Similar to like uh, Jemba, kind of like that? Yeah, I would think it's, it's, it's Jemba, yes, for sure. But with, um, with more of an emphasis, as I say, on, on the safety and just being conservative. Um, so it's it, produced by a, a company from Northern Ireland called Patterson's Pace Notes. And they, oh, yeah. as I understand, they do use the Jemba technology in the making and confirming of their notes. But uh, they would be, as the name suggests, safety notes. And to read the absolute black and white of the regulations, you were not allowed to make any changes to the notes. They had to remain as they were. And you were subject to searches and examination by the organiser at any point to make sure that you weren't running pace notes that you had. Because for some of the competitors, they would have done these stages in another guise right. and another rally. So yeah, it was that's possible I'm to have. Yeah. So, yeah, it's possible. And there's no recce, of course, because obviously only as recce can adjust notes. So how far in advance yes. do you get this book of notes for the stages um, to at least kind of study and memorize some of it or, or whatever you can to at least somewhat prepare? For me, I think it arrived something like just about three weeks. I think I was just home a little. I was a couple of days home from LSPR when it came. And um, the note, you do get... Um, a DVD with a recorded footage of a, a bit like the guys do in Olympus, like Steve McQuaid does. You get a video footage of this company making the pace notes. And there's a trip meter on the screen and there's a an insert where you can see the, the steering wheel and, you know, the angle of the steering wheel. So you can see, you know, you do get it. It's, it's HD, high quality. You do get a good view of the stages and you can listen to them making the notes and, I will put my hand up and say that I did make adjustments to the notes with those people, but the adjustments I made were slowing, particularly the sixes, slowing them down because just based on the system that Seamus and I would use in the US, their version of six was probably a little bit too brave for what our version of six was. So I transposed all, all if not most of those notes to make them just a little bit slower because they meant something, you know, six meant something different to us. But we were happy that that was okay. We weren't making the notes any faster. We were, in fact, for for our position, we're making them safer. So that was okay. We were allowed to do something like that. There's nothing saying that you can't put an extra caution in or something like that. But to make the notes faster then takes it out of the spirit of having them as safety notes, and then they really do become pace notes. And that's, 
as I understand it, what the organizers, where they're trying to go with this. Yeah, to make sure it's interesting them like that. because you'd have to expect if you're sending a DVD to with that volume of information, right? This is, again, a five-day event. It's 1,200 total miles that yes. you're going to have to notate something somewhere from watching that. You're not going to memorize it. So otherwise, what's the purpose of the DVD, right? Some guys might be able to memorize it. I don't know. I can't speak for anyone else, but certain sections of it you might be able to memorize them like you know just a few bits but i mean i went through so the the footage ran to over eight hours in total length and um i went through it obviously with the notes and you know i marked some of them by underlining them and putting my own little annotations in for you know this bit comes up quick you know you need to watch this corner emphasizing some of the the bridges that were on the stages that were quite narrow and quite slippy um, you know, there was somewhere where you either transition, you're coming off gravel onto a slightly tarmac or slightly concrete or slightly wooden bridge on, you know, the apex of a corner on the exit of a tight corner that you need to, you know, you need to make sure I do a lot of talking about this one and that it's clear we're coming to a slippy narrow bridge because if you go off here, you know, you're, you won't be doing too many more days of rally in, in, in this event anyway. So for things like that and, um, I just made some handwritten notes in a notebook here at home about the stages. You know, it's like for, for Radnor, example, the first stage of the rally, um, I would have done that in previous guys in other rallies years ago. And I would say, yeah, I remember this corner, did that in Nevo, not this driver. Remember that bit. This is the bit where we start here and we go up through the quarry and you come through the bit where there used to be trees here, but they're not here anymore. Things like that. And then that would bring that stage into my mind um, more than the physical, trying to re- remember the physical notes, you know, it just gives you an example. It's like probably saying to somebody, you know, you know, you, you know, a stage in SDPR that you're going to go to, and it's this stage, you know. I mean, waste management, for example, you know, you, you can give yourself two sentences about waste management, and you can pretty much remember all of the stage or the characteristics of all of it. So things like that, and that's that's what I did, and you know, the get a little note on, on every stage some sort of a memorandum what you were allowed to do was you were allowed have information you, you couldn't have any information in your notes that you garnered before the rally before you had done the stage so there's nothing saying that you couldn't amend your notes on the first pass as you were going through for the second pass so by the end of the rally for the stages that were ran twice I sat some horrendously messy sets of pace notes with hieroglyphic scrawls on them that only <laughs> I could read but there were little bits and pieces of that's a bit slower that's a bit faster you know this one is really slippy that sort of thing so that was interesting and um, if you were willing to do that and you could make your own system for that and be good at that you could certainly have a lot better second pass on the stage than you could on the first because you could have the notes a little bit more tuned to yourself so we had things like that you know um we used simple words like funky was one we used bad was another very bad because they're just things Seamus could get out to me quite quickly you know watch that one that's a bad corner that's a funky section things like that you know there's no grip here and that was enough that the next time you came around it's not really that it made you any faster I don't think we weren't really saying that's a faster corner it was more stuff to make sure that you stayed on the road and you didn't make a mistake in that section in the next pass of the stage because for us, and I think for pretty much anyone I spoke to on the rally, it was very much, it was a rally of conservation. Everybody wanted to finish it. That was the first and foremost thing in your mind on Thursday night when you started. And conserving the car as well, right? 
Yes, that too. Yeah, yeah, that too. Um, that was for sure. That was part of it. Yeah, definitely. Um, with us, we had, we had a number of problems during the rally. Nothing to moan about as such because everybody had similar, you know, an example would be that we had some, we had a lot of problems with the back brakes on the car. Um, you know, overheating or just losing them, different things like that, you know, wearing out. Um, we had some problems with gear selection. That was, we were, we changed a number of times the actual physical gear stick and the linkage, trying to get it better and trying to get it right. Um, just trying to make it more accurate for, for Seamus. You know, he could he could change gear, yes, but sometimes with one gear stick, second gear was a little bit of a problem. It didn't want to go in just as easy as then you change to another gear stick or another set of springs in the gear linkage. And then third became a little bit notchy and a little bit of a problem. So you were driving around, you know, little bits and pieces, little things like that, but everybody was. So it's just what you have with, you know, older equipment and you have to you have to be mechanically sympathetic and you have to nurse certain bits of the car at certain times and that sort of thing. And one thing we found, um, you know, these engines, they're they're very powerful high up. They're maybe not as responsive low down with carburetors and all these things that I couldn't begin to understand. But sometimes they kind of choke up and you're coming out of junctions that are a bit slow and spluttery and then it clears itself and it goes again and all these sort of things that you just have the, the joys of older motoring, I think. Well, that's something that Seamus probably had to get you to, used to himself as well, because he's used to the low-end grunt, you know, of the V6 that he's running over here yeah. versus the high top end, you know, lower power, you know, but uh, or where the power is, is at the top end uh, of that uh, historic car. Yeah, that's definitely one thing we spoke about. You know, when that car in the fast sections, when it, the historic car, when it got up and going and got its legs and got its grunt, for a two-liter engine, it's surprisingly powerful, and it doesn't feel any slower than the American Escort. Okay, it doesn't feel as stable because you're not working with the same good suspension travel. It's a narrower car. The U.S. Escort is wider than it should be, certainly on the back, so it's even more stable in the high speed because of that. But this car certainly had the grunt, and it would really get up and go. You could really feel the bark in it. Um, so yeah, that was something we spoke about. Yeah, that you, you know the 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 low down grunt, as you rightly say, wasn't there on the car, and it's just something you know that you you get used to. Um, another thing that was unique to this rally and harks back to the days of old. After most, but not all stages, we were able to service the car through what's called a management or a chase crew. So we had two mechanics and Joseph Burke follow us around the rally and services after pretty much every stage. So we had that advantage that you could come out of a stage and you could change tires or, you know, if you needed to change brakes or, you know, bleed your brakes to get the air out of the system, that sort of thing. Or, as I said, so change the gear So this would be stick. no service park required to do this. You would, you know, have no. some place you could pull off to and the crew would yes. be there, uh, know, just some pullout area on the transit. Exactly. So in the roadbook, it's marked areas that you are allowed work in the car and areas that you are not. And you could also fuel the car in most of these in in these areas as well. There was a places where you were allowed to fuel the car on the side of the road. And that's what we would do. So before the rally, I got that roadbook. It was um, you, you could you had an option to collect your roadbooks and your maps and so on in the UK from the rally office that was set up a number of weeks before the rally. So we had somebody from Barry's team actually go over and collect the maps and the road books and so on. When he came back to Ireland, I met him. I came home and I spent a long number of hours then poring over those bit by bit 
and making a plan on where we could service the car on the road sections, on the transits, and where we could not, and making a plan where was the best place to do that on that transit, and when that was finished, where that crew would need to go. Could they follow us for a number of miles, or did they need to divert to the next one? Because sometimes on the road that they would go, they would have a greater distance to travel than the rally car would. So if they didn't move and go to the next point, they wouldn't get there you know, before we would. And there was all those sort of little, it, it ended up with a lot of pieces of paper into this chessboard that I eventually pulled together and made a schedule of a, an A3 page for every day, named every point, chase one, two, three, four, five, and marked it digitally on a map, also marked all on the map digitally and um, the road sections with red, red lines stage, green line was where they could meet us blue line was where they couldn't and that's that worked out very simply on the rally that we knew everybody knew where everybody was or where everybody was supposed to be so we always had a place picked out where we were going to meet so there was no you know if you come off a stage with a problem then you know okay well we're allowed service in one mile from the exit of the stage the guys are going to be there they're going to be within a couple of hundred meters of this point that we've marked on the map you know drive to there you know we'll see them Sometimes we'd pull in and not, we wouldn't even get out of the car. You know, I'd be looking at my road book, plotting the next section, what was going on, oh, checking my times for that one, that sort of thing. Um, the guys would jack it up. They might change the rear tires. They might do something with the brakes. They'd invariably give us fuel, you know, just check little things in the car, give it a quick bit of a spanner check, and away we would go. And we were planned that on some of them, the road section was so long ahead of you and you had so much time that you could stay with them for 12 minutes, give or take. Or some of them, I had you no know, five minutes and we're gone out of here. And no two management points were the same. But we had a plan for every single one of them, what was possible and what we were going to do. And we also had um, a satellite messenger to communicate to them. So I had a system of every That's stage. That's one thing I was going to say is, you know, these historic forests, you know, that are, are just so storied from the history of rallying that you guys are competing in. Yes. Cell service isn't there. <laughs> so no, you had to have some exist. means of communication, obviously, but obviously the pre-planning was a huge part of that. Yeah, there was there was a lot of work went into it. A lot, a lot of hours went into it. More than I, I mean, I'm probably more OCD than I need to be about these things, I would have to say. And uh, my wife didn't see a lot of me in the, in the evenings coming up to the event because... I was just rechecking and double checking things because I had never done this event before. So I, I wanted it to go as well as, as it possibly could. Yes, I had done national rallies and different rallies in the UK. And I recognized some of the areas and some of the bit sense to me, but they were all parts of other rallies because this event was it was pretty much five rallies in one. For some people, it was we did more events distance in this rally than some people do in, in in an entire season in the program so wow. you have to think of it like that it was it was like trying to get yourself set up for for five individual national rallies so that's what we did but i you know we're happy to do the prep because it, when we got to the rally it it made it easier and it all thankfully ran like clockwork you know there was every every chase point every management point the guys were there to meet us and it, it worked out well. We had we had a good team behind us and good teamwork. So that's that's what made it work. As did did other people. You know, you would see there was other teams that that had their their chase crews, and you were seeing the same faces coming out of every stage. 
you never had the time to stop and say hello to them or anything like that. But you were you were seeing the same people and they were all doing the same job, just concentrating on on their car. As soon as they were finished working on their car, they were back into their vehicle and mustering to get to the next place. You know, I was uh, looking at uh, some of the posts and like you said the, the media coverage seemed like it was really great for this year. Um, they had their own live stream that you saw on uh, on Facebook. You had uh, um, uh, was a special stage. Uh, I believe it was Matt, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And he did he some was, of the stage and interviews. Exactly. Yeah. Doing stage and interviews and uh, all kinds of great stuff uh, that, that was being posted about it. But uh, one of the things that I did notice I was uh, posting about how amazing this event was. So it was 32 total stages. You yes. Had 300 competitive stage miles and 800 yes. road miles. That's some seriously long transits. 814, would you believe? <laughs> transit miles. <laughs> Don't want to short 14. 14 were important. That's right. 14.3 if you want to get really down to the decimal point. But yeah, a lot of, lot of road miles and uh, some difficult road miles because some of those road miles were in the dark and um, for example, one thing that I found not difficult, but would have been more difficult had I not looked at it in detail I did before we got to the event. You serviced in a place called Kielder, which is, as I understand it, the largest man-made forest in Europe, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And it is centered around a large reservoir. So there were two service areas in that forestry complex. And from where we checked in, then we drove, I think it was three miles to get to our service area. But yet we still had another 4.9 miles to drive to get to the service out control, which was via a dam over the reservoir. So all a little bit confusing in the pitch black when you have rally cars coming in all different directions because you have guys checking into service um, coming behind you. Guys that in that were in the first 30 cars that I spoke about checking out before you and going this direction. And you had just there was rally cars going every direction. It wasn't like a service area where you came in and I'm checking in here, going to service and I'm leaving over there. And I'm first in the queue or third in the queue and everyone is following behind. And it's a it's it's a linear thing. It, it was quite confusing. And when we got even to we got there, you know, just on time, just in enough time. And there was nobody else there. There was there was nobody else queuing in the thing. And you, you're there and you're wondering for a minute, am I in the right place? Am I right in time? Am I correct here? And then we realized it was quite simply that the two or three cars behind us were actually, and no, the people around us, they were late. They'd had a difficulty, be it in finding it or leaving the service or whatever. So we appeared at that point in what seemed to be no man's land. And you just have that sort of draw breath for a second. Am, am I correct here? Am I in the right place? Because as I say, it's, you know, it's pitch black, and yeah okay i am where i'm supposed to be i'm here at the time i'm supposed to be we're good let's just get on with it so yeah things like things like that were different that you don't you wouldn't normally experience on a rally you know so let's talk about the conditions uh this was definitely also something that seemed like it harkened back to uh historic rallies in uh in england and uh and wales and all that there was some serious fog some serious moisture, uh, not your easiest rally. There was, yeah. And the fog on the first night was such that it, it played a part in the first two stages being being cancelled because there was incidents and stuff that for the organisers, when there's very, very dense fog, it makes the whole thing a lot more difficult to deal with. So we didn't really get much competitive mileage um, 
on, we didn't get any on stage one or stage two. We, we drove through them. I was, I could understand the rationale behind the decision, you know, safety has to come first. And, you know, when there's a delay and, and the spectators start to move and things like that, it's, it's, it's difficult to restart a stage. But um, the fog, I would have to say, I enjoyed it. I was in a minority in that. Maybe there's something wrong with me, but I enjoy fog and I always have. And sometimes I enjoy rally. I don't enjoy, but I can, I feel I can cope with rallying in dust and rallying in low visibility. Um, and I say that solely as a selfish co-driver that enjoys it because I think it steps up the challenge of gear and it steps it up in a different direction that your driver absolutely has to listen to you and you absolutely have to get it right. And it places so much more of an importance, not just on what you say, but when you say it and, you know, when you repeat it, you have to be very measured in the amount of information you give in fog and when you give it. And you have to give it with confidence when you're confident that, yes, I am certain I'm in the right place here. I know you can't see the corner, but turn in. It's there. Trust me. This, you know, we're on a 300 straight. We're halfway down it now. The corner is coming. It's a fast one. You can keep committing. You can keep going through it. Or I need you to slow back here because this is a hairpin. You know, you can't see it, but it's here. Slow down, turn in. It places such an importance on the co-driver that when you get it right, it gives me a real buzz and a real sense of satisfaction. So I was sort of voting for fog. Um, I, 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 yeah, I would have to say I enjoyed it. Seamus didn't share my sentiments. Definitely not. He <laughs> thought it was some sort of a masochist. Yeah. So fog was, was, it was the first challenge. Definitely. It was, um, as I said, my own thoughts on that. Um, the surface of the stages was different everywhere because you're traveling from Wales, Welsh stages, English stages, Scottish stages. The surface is, is very different. You go from different types of gravel, different types of muddy surface. And in when you go to the stages around Keeler, very different ditches. And those bridges that I mentioned that if you go off the road, as happened a lot of people, you can go off and not do a lot of damage, but you're so deep in the ditch that you're not coming out anytime soon. It takes quite a bit of work to to dig you out and to, to get you back out on the road. You're not getting back out under your own power. So that was one thing we had to be conscious of for sure. And we, we spoke about it that, you know, when we get into these stages, we need to watch that you don't. The, the road is narrow, but the ditch, sometimes the ditches were as big and as wide as the actual road was. So wow. you've got to you've got to make sure you don't end in there. Yeah, it's just it's just a feature of Kielder. And it's, it's so fast that, you know, if you drop a wheel off in some of the higher speed things, it is going to suck you in. You're you're going to end up in there. So there was that, you know, things where each of those stages in the different regions just had these little different characteristics about them. And then you had some stages that were quite long. I mean, the, they, I don't know, probably purposely and cruelly decided that the longest stage of the rally at just a shade under 18 miles was the last stage of the rally. And uh, at, in those conditions when it's foggy and wet, it means you're in the car. I, I can't remember our stage time for that one, but I know it was more than 20 minutes. So, you know, you're in that fog and in those conditions for for, for long stages. And um, in the dark, you don't have as lights as good as we would be used to now with modern lights and HED lights and that's or HID, I should say, um, you know, LED lights. Because you're in period cars, you're, you're not allowed them. You're allowed a maximum for us. It was a maximum of six forward facing lights. Uh, auxiliary lights so that's they're they're good but they're not as good as some of the things that are on the market there now but everyone has the same lights and that's 
what you've got to cope with. One competitor had a, a clever and a novel idea of putting a sort of a tint on his lights, depending on the conditions. I'm not sure which was for which, but I think there was a slightly blue tint on his lights for some of the stages, perhaps in the fog. And then they had like a yellow cover or an orange cover. And that gave them different, you know, a different hue on their lights that worked better in, in different conditions. Some guys adapted the approach of turning off certain lights at certain mm-hmm. times in the stage, depending on how thick or how dense the fog was. Some guys even spoke about going to the length of turning off the right light for a left corner in the fog or vice versa while still calling notes. Can't say I wow. would have attempted that. I think that would have been <laughs> beyond what I was would have been able to do. But um, and, I, and I don't know how effective it would be either. But, you know, sometimes it's just the thing that you think works that gives you a slightly psychological advantage is the thing to do. If it makes you more comfortable, then do it and try it. You know, different things work for different people. We certainly didn't do that. We turned on our lights and hoped for the best. And as I say, when we got into the low visibility, I did my best to anchor the notes and, and talk it through like a story and, you know, convince Seamus in the places where he couldn't see that I I know I'm right here and, you know, turn in. It is a six. It is a flat out corner. You know, you can't see it, but go at it. It's there. And, you know, that works for us because we know each other so well I'm very familiar with Seamus and, and how he drives and what he can do so that was yeah that's another reason why I could enjoy the fog um, it's it's easy it's easier to do it when you're beside a driver that you know and a driver that you trust as much as I do no one trusts him so that's that's what made it good of you know? the five days in the different forests you were in uh, did you have a favorite and was it the same favorite as Seamus's I was really looking forward to the Scottish stages because I remembered those from some glory days for me back in 2008, 2009. Um, there was one stage that had a bittersweet memory for me. Um, I was with a driver and we were fortunate enough to be leading the Scottish rally. And uh, unfortunately, mechanical problem. We didn't finish. We went out while we were leading. And I'll always remember being towed out of the stage with a car that was mechanically perfect except for one small bit in the gearbox that didn't want to work and we sat on a fence waiting to be rescued by our service team ruining what could have been and one of the night stages in Scotland actually started at that point at that fence so it held memories for me you know when I when I saw it I went yeah I've been here before I remember that fence for all the wrong reasons but I liked those stages and I was looking forward to them and um, they, they, they I don't know why they disappointed me, but they did. I didn't enjoy them as much as I was expecting. Maybe I had them built up to be something in my own mind that they weren't um, for me. I mean, and also that was the point in the rally. That was Sunday night when I really found the fatigue for me was starting to set in because, you know, there were long days. We were up. We weren't getting to bed till quite late and, you know, up in the morning doing some more checking of notes, which I was doing in the mornings. Um, refreshing my memory of the stages by watching the videos again or little pieces of them going through my notes. So there wasn't a full night's sleep any night. And I think by Sunday night that that had caught up with me and I found myself in the car just having to work and give put twice as much brain power or my brain power, twice as much my what I could give into calling the notes to get what I felt was half the result, if, if that makes sense. I was working harder and I didn't feel I was doing as well as I wanted to. On that, it just it just started, you know, to feel the fatigue set in, and it was on those stages. And I spoke to one or two other co-drivers, and they 
we're saying the same thing. You're just finding that at that point, you want to just the, the night to be over and to get to bed and have a rest and and get into Monday because there was such a psychological thing for everybody about we're getting to Monday. We want to get to Monday. We want to get to the last day of the rally. And then when you start on Monday morning, in my mind was the thought that many people go out of the rally on Monday through either making a mistake or a mechanical issue. So you get up on Monday and you think, right, well, OK, I've only got what did we have to to we had five stages to do on Monday. And it seems like so little compared to what's going behind you. But Monday was still 66 miles of stages. So it's it's not insignificant. You know, it was still a long day. So there's all those little things um, about the stages, you know, that you find. Um, but there was no there was no bad stage. The Keeler stages are good. Um, the Welsh stages were good. There was no bad stages on the rally because they're all they're all classic names, you, you know, classic stages. You look at the names and they they evoke memories for so many people, and that's why it is a classic rally and why it gets such such attention and it is so revered. I mean, the only way you could compare something like that is if we what somehow strung together like Ojibwe, STPR, and Maine all together, <laughs> you know, and tried to do that kind of run. Pretty much something like that. Yes, it would be if you strung them over those days and said that we could only compete in, I don't know, cars that we all used pre-2005 or something like that. If we come up with some idea like that. Yeah, that's essentially what, what you would be looking at. But and there was a lot more spectators on this rally than I even anticipated, given the weather conditions, because there were quite harsh weather conditions with, you know, driving sleet and wind and cold, cold, um, cold weather and that the organizers as part of your pack as if if nothing else it focuses your attention they give you a little small survival pack of you know a foil blanket and things like that and safety advice as to what to do if you find yourself stranded in the woods <laughs> that that spray your mind. you it, know it, it, yeah that sort of stuff yes it reminds me of the only time i've ever got anything like that was doing one of the californian rallies where we got a warning about some snake or other um that was going to be in this national park and uh, that was a rally that I, did, that I didn't get out and do too much checking tire pressures and I didn't get out of too many controls for fear of snakes. Uh, this one was sort of similar. When it was windy and cold and rainy, I wasn't out of the car checking tire pressures for too long. I was I was trying to get back into the warm car as best I could, you know. So, you know, talking about the, the fans and things like that, I mean, you've competed in WC Wales Rally GB uh, before and now, you know, doing this type of historic rally, What's, I guess, the event like, how it's um, accepted over there in, in the UK? Uh, I mean, maybe not quite that volume of people, but it seemed like uh, there's still quite a few fans that were excited to be out there and watch uh, these historic cars. I think I would say there might have been more fans at this. Wow. Perhaps. I, I just think there might have been, you know, perception is everything and I could be wrong. You know, the numbers could be completely out. Somebody could come to me with statistics. But maybe it's that the fans on this were a little bit more enthusiastic for where we were running in the field on this rally than perhaps where we were in, in GB. Um, you know, we were finding spectators hanging across the ditches, waving at us. A lot of camera flashes, a lot of people taking photos, a lot of people still on the stages um, for the second past and, and, and late into the night. So I would say if the fans were not more enthusiastic and fulsome in numbers on this event than GB, they certainly gave that impression that there was more of them and they gave the impression that they were 
you know, more more enthusiastic about the whole thing. I would say the fact that the rally only runs every two years would probably feed into that because you have more of a build up to it and people make it more of a of an event for themselves to go to go to it and travel to it. It's 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 a destination event for that reason. And um I think that when you go to GB, perhaps people go there to see the top cars and world championship drivers. They, they go to see that small slice of the field and the rest of us while we're there. To some spectators, maybe we're just making up the numbers. Whereas in this rally, um, people were perhaps more connected to the older cars and that they don't see as much of them. If you know what I mean, people were going there to see the Mark II Escorts, to see the, the Saabs, to see the Triumph TR7s, that sort of thing. People wanted to go and see those cars and they were scattered all through the field. So you had plenty of opportunity to see it. And also people that went there to see, I mean, one of the drivers, you know, Phil Collins, not the singer, but the driver. <laughs> right. Um, a very, yeah, yeah. Just to make that distinction. Um, well-known, famous driver, very good, funny, personable guy. Uh, you know, one of these, you could describe him as a people's champion. He had slated this as his his last event that he was, you know, to do no more rallying after this, which would be, you know, a big thing. I, I can't and don't really want to pick to, you know, to equate it to a name of someone in the US. But, you know, if somebody decided they were, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, announced, I think this will be my last rally. That may well bring out more fans to see that particular driver. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there was there was some, some of that, that that played into it. And then the, the battle at the front was quite fierce over the five days between the top three cars and the lead changed quite a bit. So that had to be exciting for the fans to see those cars at, you know, full tilt on a good pace and seeing them swapping seconds on the lead change. So I'm sure, I'm sure that was exciting. And there did seem to be a lot of, a lot of fans that had traveled and motorhomes and things like that to come and, and see the rally. And there was a lot of, there was, quite a breadth of foreign competitors there you know there was french belgian crews that had all traveled as sort of en masse and stuck together with their fans so that all feeds into you know more and more people certainly any of the towns that the rally went through or any of the areas there wasn't a bed to be found i know i know that for sure and you had to you really had to have your accommodation or you were you were stuck you know you were you were traveling quite a distance to to stay anywhere so you know that speaks to just how popular the rally was. What do you think the average age of the competitors were? Was that uh, as historic as the cars? I guess you might say, or uh, yeah. does it seem like there's some younger people that are also getting involved in this historic stuff? Yeah, I'd say that probably if you were to draw a straw poll, I was probably myself closer to the junior end of the field, which I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of years since I could say that. Um, yes, I, I think it was. Yes. And it was um, a lot of some of it. You had guys who had come back to do this rally in the car, maybe that they had rallied years ago. There was, you know, guys that maybe had more modern cars or had rallied in more modern cars. And a, a wise competitor that we had a conversation with um, just before the rally on our test put forward the question to the group. And, you know, what was the best car you ever owned? And different guys give different answers about, well, I had this and I had that. And they said, no, you're wrong. Best car you ever owned was the first car you ever owned because it was the car that gave you freedom and all those things. And it was a sense of achievement to get your first car and so on and so forth. And uh, to a certain extent, this was the same for rally cars. A lot of these guys were coming back and competing in the first car that they rallied in. 
you know, which for Seamus was, you know, Mark II Escort. And I know the guy's oh, saying be it a mini or a triumph or whatever. So you're coming back and you want that nostalgia and that memory. Certainly you could rally in something like we could in the US Escort or the Evo or, you know, say in an R5 or something we've used and you could get a more capable and competent machine but mightn't be as fun and emotive to drive on stages like this as what we were actually in. There was maybe more of a soul to driving what you were driving on, on this particular rally with all the other historic cars. So it was a destination experience, a destination event, a trip down memory lane, call it what you will. And for you as, you know, a co-driver, how much of this was kind of nostalgia for you? Uh, or was it about just the competition and just another thing to check off the bucket list? Uh, for me, it was probably closer to the second thing that you described there. Yes, it was certainly an event I wanted to check off the bucket list. It was an event that I always looked at when it was on maps and felt that I wouldn't be worthy of doing the event on maps because I would feel that I wouldn't be good enough to do it on maps and I wouldn't enjoy it because I wouldn't have felt like I could have given the best account of myself and I'd be competitive within myself in that way that to go and do that rally when it was on maps I don't think I, I could have done it and came away smiling. I would have been, I, I wouldn't have felt competent enough. Whereas then when it made switch to pace notes on its um, last running two years ago, then it was something that I became more interested in and thought, right now I think I could do it. Now that would play to my skill set. Yeah, I think I could do that and enjoy it and, and give a good run. At it. And then when Seamus mentioned about doing it, that we might do it, obviously, I was up for it. We got two thumbs up. Yeah, let's try it. There's all the reasons we want to try it. But I, the approach to competitive, I wanted to get a good result. We went into the last stage, um, six seconds, sorry, equal to, uh, dead equal to Jeremy Eason, uh, who was in uh, Datsun 240. Oh, and classic. Yes. So we spoke, I the conversation went like this on the start line. You know, you know, we're, we're equal to this guy, Seamus. And, you know, we, we beat him on this stage the last time, but he beat us on this stage. And, you know, so I'm thinking this plays into our hands. You know, if we beat him on this stage before, we could do it again and so on. And he knows we're equal, so he's going to be pushing. And, you know, Seamus is saying to me, you know, pretty, what does it make the difference between if we're one place up or one place down? We're doing well in our class and so on. And I'm still thinking... Yeah, but I think we can achieve this. You know, I think we'll have a go. And then we 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 did a little bit, I think. We tried a little bit. And um, unfortunately, we had the only mistake. And this is credit to Seamus. We did not have a mistake all weekend. We had a stall on a hairpin that, when I look back at it on the camera, was a nothing, really. We were, we were barely stopped till we were starting going again. And we ended up being beaten by six seconds. And certainly in my mind, that was six seconds. If we hadn't stalled, of course, we would have had the glory of being one further place up in the leaderboard, which I guess what I'm trying to say is, yes, I definitely approach this competitive because if I hadn't, I wouldn't I wouldn't have one position on the last stage. I would have been more focused and happy to think this is great. We've got to 31 stages of this rally. Let's just get number 32 off the list finish this rally and that'll be a great achievement but no perhaps selfishly and short-sightedly I was thinking yeah we might just get nip one more place on the overall leaderboard um at that point so but I think you know you have to be competitive but I, I you know I what I will say definitely I come home now and I'm, I'm very happy and very proud that we made our way through the rally without any mistakes and, and did get a finish and that's 
a testament to the way Seamus could pace himself and approach it that you know he was mechanically sympathetic enough with the car that we had no major major problems we had little niggles and little things but no no catastrophic failures and he never put a wheel off the road yes there was one corner where we were close to it but when I saw the marks on the ditch where other people had been in and we didn't go in we were sort of half of a wheel off the road and it seemed like a big moment because we hadn't had a moment all rally but there was a lot more people in in that ditch before we were and uh, so it, it wasn't even a moment so uh, yeah I'd have to take hats off to Seamus very very good at pacing himself and making sure that we finished the rally if it was probably up to me you know I would have maybe been, been on for pushing more and more and then you know you close down the margin risk or you increase the margin risk and um, yeah might have been a different result so it's it's definitely one that I've ticked off the bucket list we've done it will we go again who knows I, I, I'd like to think we'll certainly talk about it but it's two years away yet so there's a lot of rallying to be done between now and then but we'll see but if we get if we get the opportunity to do it again yes I think it would and I'd go to it um, obviously older but probably a little bit wiser and more experienced and and know what to expect of us. With some stages, um, we were more competitive than others. Um, some stages, yeah, we just give a better account of ourselves. Um, particularly, uh, you know, I spoke about when we were when I, when I was tired. But those couple of stages in the dark, right before that, when we came out of service, um, we sort of had to knuckle down. We knew we had a brake problem, and we were just on the cusp of sorting it. You know, it wasn't as bad as it had been but it wasn't perfectly 100% the way we wanted it to be either. So we we, we had to be careful and he had to have that in, in the back of his mind that essentially the, the back brakes weren't performing as well as the front brakes. And he had to drive with a little bit of compensation for that. And we had, yeah, we had one, I, I, I stand correct, but I think we were 11th fastest on one of those stages in the fog. And it didn't seem like we were that fast, but um, I think, went a little bit faster and drove a little bit better in the fog than some other people did insofar as I think some people maybe backed off when we pushed forward and that's that was just the, the ups and downs of the event it was in my mind it's a bit like sort of an accordion effect sometimes struck we struck the right note um your overall result uh, in class now if I'm just uh, pulling up the results here off the website uh you're third in class is that correct um, no, we were actually first in class. That's we were brilliant. First. I, that, that's what yeah. that's what Ian had said, but I was looking at the results here and it says group two, but that probably doesn't account for the FIA thing, right? Yeah, we were yeah, we were first in, in that class. Well, Jason Pritchard, who was second overall, to give him his credit and give him his due, was in the same FIA spec class car as we were, another escort. And he was obviously ahead of us in the results because he was second overall, but we were the next placed person in the finishers list uh, in that class and because he got an overall award then you can only receive one award on the rally that's gotcha. the, the that part of the sense. of the rules so that's then why 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 we why we why we got that and that's how it, it slotted in for us so yeah we we happily came home with a first in class award but it was nice just to go to the prize giving i didn't actually expect that i expected us i i expected we would move up one place because Mr. Pritchard and Mr. Clark were second overall, but um, we, I, I didn't question it. We were called up for, I knew we were getting something at <laughs> the prize giving. We were called up and we were given first. And then when I saw the official results out, yeah, that's where we were. 
So congratulations, uh, yeah, very, that's brilliant. Very, yeah, happy, happy and glad with that. And there was there was a lovely atmosphere at the prize giving of everybody was in good form that they had finished the rally, whether they they'd got an award or not. There was a real sense of achievement for everyone that had finished because so many people set out with that just as their goal and to achieve that was was good you know that's brilliant and of course uh you know you're saying earlier uh you know you were working with uh, barry mckenney mckenna and his crew and he was out there competing and he was having a up and back battle all weekend uh he, he admitted quite honestly to the camera that uh if he didn't keep, uh, I'll say, messing up uh, periodically, he'd have a better result. But uh, still, uh, overall, he was in the top 10 there. So he was definitely wanting to fight it with the top guys. Yeah, Barry had a brilliant result and a brilliant performance. Barry and Arthur did very, very well. Um, Barry would not be used to historic rallying or used to that spec of car. So to come into it having, like ourselves, not done an event in the car and to start it fresh did really, really well. Um very much buried in my own rally. So I was only now and again flicking across to look at their times. Obviously, I had a foot in that camp and wanted to see them do well. And I was looking at their times and they had some brilliant times. And then they had some bad times where they had problems. I think they were slightly off the road and slightly stuck on one of the night stages and they dropped. I think I remember them saying they dropped something like two minutes. And, you know, that happened so many people. But obviously they were able to get back on the road and you know, what might have been if they hadn't dropped that two minutes. Who knows? But they had some excellent times and he was really, he was shaking the whole thing up. Definitely he was. And I I know he spoke of that if there was some mistakes, but so many people made mistakes on the rally. Obviously, they didn't make any critical ones because they made it to the finish. So that was a really good result um, for somebody who has that little experience. You've got to think that the guys that finished first, second and third in that rally have done it so many times. Marty, who won the rally, is now a three-time winner. Jason yeah, Pritchard. Cormac, he's just brilliant. Yeah, he and Barney had a, had a fantastic result. They really, they measured their pace. They they bossed that rally. They went into it with uh, a, a great level of, of preparation and, and thought went into their, their event and how they managed their event. And Drove a very, very smart rally, never put a mark in the car, never put a foot wrong, always managed their lead and managed their gap that they were still there on on Monday when it mattered. And yeah, they were very, very impressive, I have to say. And then, you know, I talk about the classes there, the the car that I think finished fourth overall, the Galant, um, lovely car, four-wheel drive car uh, that you would imagine would suit those stages. And you would think on paper that the, the more... Modern technology, you know, you're talking about something that came into the the early 90s would be the car to because those cars can run on uh, the, the restrictor that they ran on of the time, like the 38 mil restrictor. So you've got to think that that would be an animal of a car. So you've got those guys um, finishing just just in front of Barry and Arthur. And it's it, it shows you that to, to be mixing it with those guys is is a great result. And it's for us. As we talk with our U.S. hat on, it's it's good for U.S. rallying because it shines a light on, oh, those are the guys. You know, typically you would go and people would always ask you about David Higgins and people that name was in their consciousness that David Higgins was the guy that was rallying in the U.S. But now things have slightly changed. People will come up and talk about, you know, Oliver. People will talk about Travis. 
it's it's and, and they know Barry's results in the US and things like that. So I suppose the advent of social media and what you guys do with your reports shines a light on it and makes it more accessible to people outside of the US and, and over here. So to see US competitors come over and put in times like that and get results like that, it, it validates the thing for all of us and shows that, you know, we're we're doing proper in doing what we're doing too and well and mileage um, wise right um one thing that uh, i heard david higgins you know talking on our friends over at absolute rally about how you know a, a lot of the folks in europe don't realize how many more stage miles we tend to do on average versus what would be over there in the uk and uh so with these distances you're running you know that kind of probably helps uh, for the mindset a little bit yeah that's a very fair point yes very much so we definitely do more stage mileage and that's something when people were mentioning about the longer road sections that we had to do on this rally, you know, Seamus would have said to me, sure, it's not, that's not, you know, our long road sections driving that sort of distance. We're used to that, you know, and people looked at road mileage we were doing for the day and, you know, Seamus would have said, well, you know, sometimes we do more than that in the US. So it didn't, yeah, that's right. It was something that we were, we were conditioned to. Um, maybe the guys here take for granted because stages are so close together. Normally, you know, you do, rally in an area the stages are quite centralized um so yeah it it's that is it, that's a valid point yeah and perhaps that that suited us and suited our position but um definitely it's, it's you know the amount of people that came up to us looked at the escort because we had it an identical livery to the u.s car people started asking is, is this the car do you rally this in the u.s and then you have to explain to them no it looks the same kind of but it's not the same and tell people but i thought that had some crazy engine and you go well yes it does have a mustang engine it is a v6 and yeah you're right. and people knew snippets about the car and, and wanted to talk about it so obviously we liked talking to people about that and then there was also people that um recognized seamus from when he was because he he did rallies in the uk back in the 1980s so he was meeting some competitors that remembered him and recognized him and one guy actually came up and well Here's an interesting fact for you. One of the last rallies that Seamus did in Wales, he had a very interesting guy doing the spannering, working on the car. I guess who that is. He's quite a big noise now in World Championship rallying. And he serviced Seamus Burke's car. He changed the wheels on Seamus Burke's car in that last rally. Okay. Um... When Seamus was last rallying in Wales. We're talking back in the early 80s. Okay. Before this guy was a WRC team owner. Team owner or a team manager? Yes. Team, team owner. owner. So Malcolm yes. Wilson? Correct. Wow. Back in the day. He was, yes, he was Ma- changing tires on Seamus's car? Absolutely, yeah. Oh, that's brilliant. Absolutely. And it, it just goes yeah, back to Seamus the core in- of what M Sport is all about. You know, they Absolutely. starting from the ground up and, and yes. working his way to what he be, what that team has become. That is just so cool. Yes. So in, in those days, Malcolm Wilson Motorsport was of the same name. It existed in Cumbria and at that Malcolm would have been hiring out he was certainly driving Audis in the British Championship. And I think he was hiring out Audis even then, because he had come from a Ford background and driving Fords himself, was still heavily involved in renting Fords and running and servicing Fords on events for drivers. And Seamus bought at least one car off him in his day. And he did uh, a program of two or three 
rallies in the UK. And when he went to the UK to do those rallies, it was Malcolm Wilson Motorsport that was looking after the car. So wow. one of the other competitors from the, because we, we, the, the rally in, in the latter days was based in, in Cumbria. So, you know, M Sport country. Um, and Malcolm has won the rally himself in the past, actually, in a Mark II Escort. So he has his own connections to the, 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 the and one of the competitors came up and recognized Seamus and, you know, they got to talking and talking about when you were last rallying here and so on. And that's right. Didn't, you know, didn't Malcolm Wilson run your car and Seamus wanted to tell him, yes, he did. And he, he changed the wheels on the car. So, yeah, interesting. Just goes to show, you know, how uh, the circle, as you say, comes around and the connections that we've all we've all built and, and enjoying the sport. So, yeah, it's it's good. Well, as I've uh, kept you up pretty late over there, uh, Martin, I do want to close out with one of your obsessions that we know about, and uh, <laughs> <laughs> and that happens to be with farm equipment. Uh, I knew about tractors, but apparently not silage trailers, and, and that somehow came to an advantage for you over the weekend. <laughs> well, now, Mike, as you say, one, one of my obsessions, and then when you said one of my obsessions that you know about, that relaxed me a little bit, as long as it's one of the ones that you know about. Yeah, I mean, coming as a, a, I was a farm kid many years ago, grew up in a farming background, and, and farming, in a way, led me to rallying because as a kid, I was all about everything Ford and Ford tractors, uh, which led me into rallying because I saw Ford rally cars and recognized those as a connection to Ford tractors and so on. So I, I always harp back to the nostalgia of that. And uh, yeah, like tractors, like farm equipment, um, probably with rose tinted glasses, you know, because I'm not involved in it anymore. So it's easy to to look back and, and enjoy it. And it's, it's, it's a hard day's work to do any of that. So it's pretty easy to be a spectator of uh, of it and as such when the one of the service areas was based in a, a mart which is where people local farmers bring their animals to be sold and this was a sheep mart and there was one of the workers in the mart there down animals with some straw so you know think of the the manger scene you know the the lamb's been bedded down in the bit of straw and that's what this guy was doing and he was taking the straw out of a, a trailer a silage trailer and then he was washing away washing down the, the concrete you know from some of the the stuff that he'd been taking away and this was as we came into the service area in the queue and i was standing out of the car just stretching my legs and so on and started talking to him about what model and make that trailer was and <laughs> probably making the connection that that trailer compared to modern equipment was in itself a bit of a historic and how it was quite small now compared to modern day machinery and it's interesting to see something that would have been let's say, at the forefront of the industry X amount of years ago, now being relegated to this sort of menial job of just bringing around bedding for animals. And that's the way the conversation started. But as this conversation was going on, the guy was holding a very big hose, which he was using to wash down the yard. And I said, would you mind, actually, if I borrow that for a couple of seconds and wash our rally car? So I did. And it was it initially started out in deference to be kind to the mechanics that you know, the wheels and the wheel studs were washed off and underneath the arches were clean so that when they went to work on the car, they did a, a little bit of an easier job um, because, you know, when they were coming in before that in service, I noticed they were taking quite the amount of muck from underneath the car before they were able to do any work on it. So then it was pointed out to me <laughs> as I'd washed the rest of the car with other competitors that came in behind us, why were we clean and they weren't? Were we not going very quick on the stages? So that then turned into a bit of a joke amongst the others that um, 
yeah, we had the cleanest car in the service in queue. And why did we have the cleanest in cleanest car in the, in the queue? So, yeah, I mean, I think my the way I characterize described at the time, it's always good to have a, a farmer on hand and, and never miss an opportunity. And you just never know at these rallies what what a conversation will lead to. And he was he was very helpful and he was more than happy to loan me his big hose to wash the car. And he saw the funny side of it, too. And just, yeah, it was a bit of light relief in the middle of it all. And the mechanics did come over and actually thank me. So, I yeah, <laughs> yeah, I I, uh, I got a pat on the back from them. So that was that was glad that was that was the brilliant. first win of the weekend, I think. Brilliant, brilliant. Well, definitely the uh, best looking car, not just then, uh, arguably the best looking livery, I think, of the whole weekend um, out there with the RAC. What what an epic adventure. Um, it does feel like it really did harken back to the old days, just the way this thing was structured, the vehicles that were competing, uh, still really good competition and congratulations on coming out with a, a first place trophy. That's just fantastic. Yeah. Thank you very much for that. And I would just like to say, you know, a big thanks if they, some of those people end up listening to this, to the organizers, because they do a fantastic job. And I, I say this knowing that the amount of work I felt I had to put in myself just to get, the events clear in my head and, uh, you know, the, a helicopter view of, of how big it was and where it went and where we needed to be and what we needed to do to be clear on the on the structure of the event. The amount of work they would have to do to put in to organize a rally over such a huge physical distance for so many cars with so many marshals and that I can understand and appreciate how realistically it could only happen every two years because it's it's such a big undertaking to run. And as I said, for us, it's like doing a full season's worth of rallying in, you know, just shy of a week. So it's quite an impressive thing. And I'm glad that we have it and we all get to experience it and that hopefully the opportunity to be there to do it again, because it does hark back to the old days of long, arduous days in the rally car, being able to service the car on the side of the road Um and it, it brings, because of that, it brings it very much into focus as a team event, not just the driver and the co-driver in the car, but your your support team as well and your, your chase crew. And everyone has to gather to make sure the thing finishes. So there's a great, it it, it all adds up and leads to uh, a, great se- a great sense of achievement when and or if you finish it and a great sense of team accomplishment if you finish it. And so many people that were crossing the finish ramp um, took the opportunity to have a get a picture taken with their with their team, and that spoke to the fact that um, it it is as I say a team event, and uh, we're lucky to have it, and hopefully we'll continue to have it in the future, and maybe get a chance to do it again. Well, again, congratulations! No what no, thank what you. an awesome event, and thanks for staying up so late. Uh, I'm guessing you've had not much sleep in the last seven days. Uh, well, when I came home, we we got we came home a little bit earlier than we had planned. We got the boat home. And um, uh, I came home and pretty much got the boat left Wales at 2 a.m. So there was a little bit of sleep on the way to the boat, slept on the boat in the cabin, uh, came home off the boat at six. I was home here early afternoon. I went straight to bed, got up for another couple of hours and I was back in my bed at nine o'clock. So, yeah, it did. I didn't like all these things. You don't realize that you're tired until the event is over because I was going to get into bed at one half one that sort of thing and i was setting alarms for five to get back up and check notes and road books and things like that so um yeah the, the as as the event went on the yeah the the sleep was running away uh on me 
definitely, yeah. Proper endurance, so, that's for sure. It was a little bit of that, yeah, but I, I would have found it a whole lot more difficult if I wasn't as prepared as we were before we left home. So I was I was very thankful for that, you know, that we had, I, I had I had plotted the route. Um, guys couldn't have done 20 and 30 years ago. I plotted so much of the route using Google Maps and Google Images, Google Earth, that I knew, I, you know, there was junctions that I could see in the road going, well, that one's not really making sense to me, but I could zoom in and go, oh, okay, well, there's a shot there or there's a church there. Here's what I'm looking for on a signpost. This road looks a little bit like that. And when you were in the dark, that made such a difference to just having the confidence that I know I'm in the right place and so on. So historic rallying with a modern twist for sure there. Yeah. Even in the planning. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) And then coming off every stage and, and sending the lads a message by using satellite phones. (laughs) They didn't have that before either. So we were, yeah, we're very millennial, very positive. Again, congratulations on the, uh, on the trophy. No, Uh, get some rest. Um, Well, actually I did have one last question is, Shoot, yeah. what's next for martin brady because wow you've accomplished so much man um are you done for the season i know you do a lot of rallying stuff that we don't really hear about necessarily in the states uh or are you just kind of you know what i need a break i'm done for the winter let's focus on next year i could give yeah pretty much that's the second answer yeah finished for now um there's no definitely seamus has, has no rallies I, I don't know where he could come up with one and i don't know what we're doing next year um we're going to talk about it. Obviously, he has he's another rally car now at his disposal, so he could do, you know, historic rallies here. That might be something we'll do. Let the dust settle from this one and and see what's what's available, what's the best opportunity. But for now, yes, I'm finished. As for what comes next, gosh knows. Have license, will travel. You know, I'll, I'll do <laughs> I'll it. do any event that I'm able to do. Um, hopefully, the backbone and extra will be back in the US because do enjoy it there um plenty of experience there and i i would like to i'd like to keep going at that so i'd hope that'll be part of the story for next year but just don't know yet well we enjoy having you martin thank you so much again for taking the time thanks mike yes i would miss i would i would seriously miss not being able to come back to service and have some sort of a story for you (laughs) you you tend to have some of the best ones that's for sure thank you mike okay (laughs) And uh, happy Thanksgiving to everybody listening. If you hear this before Thanksgiving, and what I'll right. do, Mike, when I get a chance, I'll send you a photo of the actual trophy that we got, so you can maybe stick that up as a photo on the thing. That sounds great. And thank you so much for sharing information with us, so we could share it out uh, as Open Paddock, because we really enjoyed doing that and keeping track of what was going on. Great. All right. Good night, Cheers, Mike. Martin. See you. Bye. Bye. Thank you again to our guest, Martin Brady, telling us about this historic rally event. We definitely love historics on this show. Remember, if you like what we're doing on this show, it's a big help if you give us a like, a follow, leave us a brief comment, tell us what we can do to improve, or what you'd like to hear from us. Even better than that, tell a friend to listen too. As always, thank you for listening. I'm your host, Mike Shaw. And remember, keep it shiny side up, and don't cut. (laughs) 